How was your week, by the way? You can figure that's a rhetorical question, but you know, just think through your week. And uh, it's interesting trying to get used to the um, yeah, trying to get used to the isolation, trying to get used to the the uh, the strictures of this. Uh, quarantine and this lockdown has been interesting. It's like it's all the rhythms that we had of our lives are thrown off and, and trying to reestablish new rhythms and they're not comfortable. They don't quite fit. You know, there's this still this mix of uncertainty and uh, fear, of course, and now it's added with loneliness. I've been talking to uh, a lot of folks uh, through this week, either on phone or by email, by text, and, and then there's this mix of uncertainty and fear, loneliness, and the one that's creeping in more and more that I'm hearing more and more is boredom. You know, boredom in there. It's like, what do I do with myself? I suddenly have all this time. What the heck? You know, and, uh, and of course, cabin fever. Going a little bit stir-crazy, you know. Um, it, it's only been a couple of weeks, and yet, I don't know about you, but it feels like forever. It feels like somehow it's always been this way and trying to, to deal with it. Remembering fondly crowded restaurants. Remembering fondly standing in line for coffee, you know. Remember uh, when the freeway was jammed. Remembering sporting events or, or theaters. I mean, it's, it's so strange with the streets so empty and the freeway so empty um, that we're kind of nostalgically thinking uh, and fondly thinking about the crowds that used to make us crazy, you know. But isn't it interesting how all this turns? Who knew that we could miss that crowdedness? Who knew that we would miss just simple human presence? I mean, it is so different now. And just walking into that crowded restaurant, realizing that you had to wait 10 minutes for a table, you know, if it was 10 minutes, sometimes a half an hour. But just all of that activity, just knowing that it's out there, it's, uh, it's doing a psychological and spiritual number on us. And as I'm talking to everybody and I'm just looking at myself and, and Marion and the family, I realize, yeah, this is changing fundamentally the way that we just are doing life right now. And uh, I had a conversation with a, a friend of mine. He called me and uh, actually he texted first. He texted and he said, if it's okay that we can talk, uh, I, I could really use a, a shoulder right now. So I called him right back and we started talking. And, and he's, a, he's a very mature guy, very spiritual guy. And what he was talking about, and he said the thing that's getting to him most is that uh, it's, he's feeling, feeling overwhelmed, overwhelmed with just everything that is going on. He's a very intuitive person, very empathic. You know, he's a... He's a He's a, he's a speaker and a, and a coach and a helper. And, and so he is so in tune with everything. And of course, he's watching too much news. And he admitted that. He says, I got to turn the news off. So, but at the same time, he is so aware of all the pain out there, all the loneliness, all of the, the deprivation that is going on, that it was just overwhelming him, just really working him. And it was getting hard for him just to be able to, to just deal. He's finding himself getting depressed. He's finding himself, and having no place to put that depression. You know, he, he likes to help people, having no place to put that energy, right? And I think some of you can, can probably relate. What we started talking about was this difference between the macro angst and finding a way to challenge it in a micro way. Because if you think about it, our lives are really micro lives. 
We're aware of the macro. We're aware of groups. And sometimes we're in crowds and in groups. But really, we're still dealing with pretty much one person at a time, one decision at a time. And so even though you can be aware of all of this stuff that's going out there, obviously we don't have any control over it. Obviously there's not a thing that we can do about it. And yet it's working us in a way, it's motivating us in a way to do something. How do we channel that back into a micro place? And he was afraid that he wasn't doing that. He was afraid that he was no real use or help um, in all of this pain that he's feeling. And so we talked more about that. And it was interesting because he told me that the reason he called me was that he didn't want to talk to his closest family members. He didn't want to talk to his lady friend, his significant other, because he knew that they would worry about him, that he still needed to be kind of the confident captain in a way, uh, the one who, who they could lean on. And so he didn't want to burden them with what he was going through. He was thinking about them. He said that he still goes out for walks. And he's finding, and maybe some of you are seeing this too, because I've seen it and other people are telling me about it, there is increased connection just with passers-by, as rare as they are. You know, He said before where you just would walk past someone and there would be no eye contact, everybody keep their heads down. Now heads are up, eye contact is coming. There's people just slowing down and waving out of car windows. He said he's aware of all this as it's going on. And he's aware of these things that are happening. And he's trying to be a part of that. And I was trying to point out to him, you're already doing it. You're already channeling that angst that you feel from the macro into your concern and your care for the people that are closest to you. Even if it's by not speaking to people so that they don't get burdened, that's still a careful act that you're doing. And by connecting wherever you can connect, you know, this is all the thing. He talked about maybe he wants to give blood. I was thinking, yeah, giving blood, that would be something that we can do. Maybe giving supplies, maybe just boosting people's morale in every, any way that we can. We talked about what all this means. What does all this mean? Does it mean anything at all? What does it mean and how is it changing us? We talked about all that kind of stuff. And it turned out that he really just needed to kind of process out loud because after about five or ten minutes, he started giving me advice and trying to help me. So I said, okay, I know he's all right now. He's doing fine you know, because he was able to turn that back around. That's just the, the kind of guy that he is, channeling that, finding a way in the micro, in a place where we can make choices to channel all of that energy and all of that angst. And not just let it hang up there and work on us. Last week I was talking about how best I could help. I was thinking about this from my perch as a pastor here at this faith community. How best could I help? And I was talking about the difference between trying to put out kind of a a blanket macro message on, on social media. Was that the best thing to do? To try to do either little video clips or, or writings or something? And, and I'm seeing social media flooded with that. But I realized that so many of the times, those messages, as, as, as well-intended and sometimes as, as spot-on as they can be, are so missing the mark for individuals, trying to hit the center of each person's bullseye uh, you know, in a remote sort of way with a blanket message. And I thought maybe it would be better to really focus on the individual, to talk to individuals, to try to understand what they were going through and how I could be really relevant in helping them. Last week we talked about that this is Jesus' MO. This is his modus operandi. This is what he did naturally. 
everything that Jesus did was predicated on a personal connection. He never airdropped anything. He never had a blanket message that he just passed out to everybody. Everything was preceded by connection, by touch. We talked about how he touched the leper before he healed him. We talked about how he called the paralytic his son and told him that his sins were already forgiven, which meant that he was already back into connection and community before he healed him. We talked about how he called Levi out of the tax booth and, and accepted his invitation to come dine with him before he had changed anything in his life. Personal connection, breaking social ritual and, and theological boundaries as the precursor to any sort of action or response to the person, knowing the person, knowing who they were. That was the way Jesus always worked. And I wanted to try to do this myself this week with individuals in, in phone calls and emails and texts and whatever way technology allowed us to get together. And so this week, that was last week, this past week has been even more interesting because I managed to get myself sick. Vertigo, who knew, right? Uh, I, I suppose it must be viral right now because uh, um, two or three people have it at the same time. But that dizziness and, and that, that, uh, that, that just sense of sickness where I really couldn't navigate very well forced me down for two days. And then I was slowly coming back and trying to navigate. But the illness made me even get smaller. The illness really narrowed down even further my ability to do anything that I could possibly do for people. It forced me to go inward this week in a way. And start to realize that if I'm going to have anything to say that's of value, that's relevant, that's helpful to people, if I'm going to be empowered to do anything that's relevant and helpful for people through this whole thing or just in general, then I need to have a sense of meaning, a meaning of what is going on here and what this crisis means, at least to me. Because without that sense of meaning preceding all of this, without a sense of how I am relevant to that meaning, then what am I doing? I'm running around trying to give people what I think they need without really having a sense of how this all connects. When our kids were little, I remember one of our daughters always saying, what that mean, mom? What that mean? I love that. I still say that now. So what that mean, mom? What's the meaning? What is the meaning in this? And how do I relate to that meaning? How I answer that question, what this meaning is, and how I relate to that meaning, has everything to do with my response to it. Right? How I feel that this is coming down on me, what it means to me, is going to cause me either to start hoarding bathroom tissue, (laughs) or it's going to force me to give blood, or maybe to just counsel a friend, or do all sorts of different things. But my sense of meaning, what this means to me, is going to channel my response in one way or or another. It's either going to be fight or flight, or it's going to be some sort of, of giving. Am I going to be based in fear, or am I going to be based in connection? This sense of meaning is giving that impetus, is informing all my choices, informing all my decisions. How we deal with this, 
has to do with this sense of meaning. We need meaning, every single one of us. And you see attempts at getting meaning all around. Everybody's trying to make sense of this, trying to have some sense of, of meaning. Because here's the thing. For us as human beings, something this big, right? Something this scary can't be random. Our minds just don't want to accept that. If it's this big, if it's this absolutely life-changing, if it's this scary, it can't be random. There has to be a reason. And not only that, if it's this big, then that reason, that source, has to be pretty big as well. It can't be some small thing. There's got to be some reason, some, 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 the, the punishment has to fit the crime, right? Somehow this has to all make sense. Do you remember the Kennedy assassination? Well, some of you remember the Kennedy assassination. That was so big, that was so life-changing to our nation's history and our nation's psyche, if you will say, that we couldn't, so many of us couldn't process or accept that it was just one lone gunman, one lone person who caused all of that change to our nation. It had to be more than one. There had to be many gunmen. There had to be a conspiracy. It was the mafia. It was the U.S. government. It was this, it was that. All these conspiracy theories started to come into being because we couldn't accept that it was just a lone government. Now, I know a lot of you are saying that it wasn't just lone, one, one lone government. Okay, that's fine. You know, A good conspiracy by nature is unprovable. <laughs> we don't know for sure. But whether there was one or more, whether there was someone else behind it or just one gunman, doesn't change the fact that we, psychologically, spiritually, as people, have got to have more more meaning. It can't be something random and it can't be something really small that creates such huge results. Do you remember 9-11? When 9-11 hit us 20 years ago almost, we couldn't accept that something that huge was just, you know what, a couple dozen of, the, of these terrorists? It had to be something bigger than that. You know, Again, it was the U.S. government. It was the CIA. It was this. It was that. You know, No way that those, those uh, buildings pancake on their own. It had to be because there was demolition going on someplace and some nefarious thing going on. We couldn't accept that it was just that one small cause that created so much pain. So much change. And now we come to COVID-19. The same exact thing is happening right now, isn't it? What is this thing? What is this virus? Is it really just random? There has to be more to it than that. I'm sure some of you have been hearing some of the conspiracy theories that are surrounding COVID-19 right now. But there's the same idea. There's got to be a causal explanation and a reason for this whole thing that's as big as the event itself. Why? Because we can't take the uncertainty. We can't take that. We need a sense of understanding. And more importantly, why do we need a sense of understanding? Because we need a sense of control. If we understand it, to a certain extent, we control it. If we can understand it, if there's something that makes some sort of sense to us, then we can start to at least relax into the pain. And we will go to any lengths to try to create that sense of certainty, to try to create that sense of understanding. You know, originally the... The virus was said to be a, a byproduct of bat soup, that someone was eating bat soup in Wuhan, and, and it came from bats. And, of course, now the epidemiologists say, no, that's not true. It didn't come from bats. 
But that was too small. It was at least a reason, but it's still too small. Now it's like, okay, it's a plot by the Chinese government that, that it was a bioweapon, you know, a, a weaponized virus that got out of the laboratory at, at, at Wuhan in, in China. And, uh, and then the Chinese, of course, are saying – and this is the interesting thing. It's not just individuals saying this anymore or people just on the internet. Now it's governments that are saying this. China turns around and says, no, we didn't start it. It was the U.S., you know, one of their bioweapons got out of the laboratory. And, of course, Iran is, is jumping on that and saying, yes, it's the U.S. that started this. Did you know that Iran's Ayatollah and the Philippine Senate president used that excuse to refuse U.S. medical aid because they're saying that we were the ones who started this? Big causes for big events. It helps us to process things, to make a sense of it. Of course, so many of us are talking about this being the beginning of the end time sequence, the biblical um, prophesied end times. Now, another big cause to an event like this. Many of us are saying that the virus is a hoax, right? It's a cover-up for a power grab of our country over its citizens. So many rumors going around about martial law being started. Did you know that FEMA actually had to start a website just to dispel rumors and primarily to put down the idea that any type of martial law in the United States was imminent. But these rumors are going crazy. It's a hoax. It's a cover-up. There's some big nefarious thing going on. Or it's a hoax because the virus is really no more deadly than the common cold, but it's used to being, uh, used to stoke the panic, both in terms of health and in terms of economy, to undermine the president. That's another one that's going around. The anti-vaxxers, the anti-vaccine people, you know, they're saying that the virus is an effort to force vaccines on them and that this was perpetrated and orchestrated probably by Bill Gates. Didn't know if you heard that one, but Bill Gates is very big on vaccines and his foundation is very big on vaccines. So he's the problem, right? Obviously, the age-old stereotype has come to the fore once again that Jews are behind it all. That Jews or Jewish stand-ins like George Soros or the Rothschilds or even Israel itself, who have the power to influence world events, are to blame for the outbreak for their own gain in some way, shape, or form. There are other rumors and uh, (laughs) ideas going around that uh, the virus is treatable by Lysol, by oregano oil, by coconut oil, and get this, by gargling with bleach. Now, if you think that no one would ever do that, did you hear the story coming out of Arizona of the couple that ingested the um, chloroquine phosphate that's used to clean aquariums, clean fish tanks, because it had the same name on the label that um, the uh, administration was talking about as being a possible cure? And the man died and the woman was in critical care. You know, imagine the fear. These, this couple in the Phoenix, Arizona area, I think, in their 60s, at risk, isolated, fearful. You think you would never do something that strange? And yet, what does fear do to us? What is that need for some sort of certainty, that need that there is some control that you have that will take you to such lengths? There is rumors going around that black people and Yemenite Jews are naturally immune to the disease. (laughs) (laughs) And they would recover quickly if they got it, and they probably won't get it at all. And we haven't even gotten to the silly ones yet. Want to hear some of the silly ones? 
Here's one that Disney Plus released the COVID-19 in time for its launch of its streaming services. Or that Netflix did it in time with their new series, Pandemic. Okay, it's Disney. It's Netflix. Um, There's a rumor that COVID-19 arrived via fireball from space that burnt up in China last October. Never mind that there is no record of any sort of, of meteor hitting the Earth. But, you know, that's okay. Meteorite, actually. Here's one that I hadn't heard before, but the new 5G cell towers that are going up as they're trying to establish 5G cell networks, they're responsible for COVID-19 and the coronavirus. And the last one that I have here is that a psychic predicted, maybe you heard this one, a psychic predicted COVID-19 back in 2008. Did you hear that one? Or that an episode of The Simpsons predicted the coronavirus, or a thriller novel by Dean Koontz, or this one, Disney's Tangled. That was released in 2010, which was a retelling of the story Rapunzel, who was quarantined for 18 years up in the tower by the evil queen or whatever. And most importantly, the city or the village that she was being protected from or quarantined from was named Corona. So obviously, Disney is behind this again. You know, as crazy as these sound, there is comfort in them. There is comfort in them. And You may resist that intellectually, but at a deeper emotional level, it's a place that we can point to. It's a place we can point blame. It's a place that we can unload our frustrations and our anger and our fear and all that pent-up stuff. There's someone that we can unload all that stuff on. It's sort of a way to we can nod knowingly, you know, and believe that we're in on the secret that we understand, that we've got some truth that others don't, that we can hold on to. And like we said, a good conspiracy by its nature is unprovable. We don't know if these things are true. I mean, some of them we're pretty sure aren't, and others are being proven untrue, but that's not really the point. The truth of the matter is not the point. It's the comfort that it brings us, just having something to hold on to. Did you know there's actually a name for this? It's called apophenia. Have you heard that word before? It was developed by a psychologist or psychiatrist who was actually studying the early stages of schizophrenia. And what he noticed in people was that we humans have this uh, tendency to see patterns and to see connections between things that are completely unrelated, to assign meaning in places where there really isn't any. It's like seeing the Virgin Mary in a piece of toast. Right? We see the connections. We see images. We connect dots and patterns and try to make sense of things. It, it's, it's just the way that we work. We crave meaning. Meaning is everything to us. Viktor Frankl, I believe, was right. He said the main drive for human beings is the search for meaning. With meaning, we can do just about anything. We can endure just about anything. We can overcome things if there is meaning in them. But it's that lack of meaning, it's that uncertainty that just makes us crazy. Now, I want to make a distinction here, a really important distinction, because there's a difference between finding meaning in events, external events or circumstances or objects, which may or may not be there. That's where the apophenia kicks in. We're trying to look out there at these things and try to assign meaning to them. I want to make a distinction between that and what that external thing, that event, that circumstance, that object means to me, to you, for me, for you, 
what it's saying to me or saying to you. That's a very different thing. That's something that we absolutely have to do. Not try to find the meaning externally, but find the meaning internally. What do these things mean to me? How are they significant to me? Think about this for a second. Events and circumstances and objects really have no inherent meaning of their own. They're inanimate objects. They don't have meaning. We assign the meaning to them. I was so struck by Lincoln's second inaugural address where he is trying, he's starting his second term, he thought, and he was looking now toward, as the war was ending, the Civil War was ending, binding up the nation's wounds and carrying on. And one of the lines in there is that both North and South in this conflict, in this struggle, read the same Bible, prayed to the same God for their ability to overcome the enemy in the same war. The irony of that is what he was bringing out in his address. Reading the same Bible, praying to the same God, but looking at the war so completely differently. Seeing themselves as the righteous party in each instance. Same war. Different meaning being assigned by different people. We look at a terrorist attack and we call it a terrorist attack. But to the terrorist, isn't it a freedom fight? Isn't it a righteous cause to throw off the oppressor? Same event, different meaning being attached. Think about our flag. For some people, it has the deepest significance. To our military, absolute significance and relevance. And to others, it's just a symbol of oppression, derision. They want to burn it. They want to take a knee instead of standing at attention during the national anthem. Same object, different meaning being attached. Think about the Super Bowl. What meaning did you attach to the Super Bowl? Didn't it matter whether you were a chief or a 49er? You were looking through those lens at the same game, which had no meaning really of its own, but all the meaning that was attached to it, all the energy and the emotion, the ecstasy or the defeat. You felt and you attached meaning to it based on who you were, what it meant to you, not the event itself. Scripture. We talk about that rhema moment when we read Scripture where the meaning just kind of jumps out and, and just you know permeates us. But what meaning that you got out of a particular passage at one point in your life, when you go back to it, Sometimes it's different. Sometimes which was, well, that which was so meaningful doesn't really hit you at all a time later. And then again, it'll hit you, but you'll see something different, a different meaning at that time. See, the meaning is much more in our engagement with, our participation with, our connection with an event, a circumstance, an object than there is in that object itself. We bring the meaning. We are the ones that decide what the meaning is for ourselves. You've heard the old saw, if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it, does it really make a sound? (laughs) If the tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to witness it, does it mean anything? 
See, that's the thing. These objects, these events, by themselves, in isolation, we want to try to assign meaning to them. There's really no meaning there. But they mean something deeply to us. And that's what we need to start to take a look at. One last example. I love this story about Fred Rogers. You know Fred Rogers? You know? Mr. Rogers in his neighborhood. A lot of people don't know that he was a ministerial student and candidate early in his life. And as he, when he was in divinity school, um, there was one point where he wanted to go hear the sermon of a very famous preacher. And so he and a fellow student of his, a woman, went to this church to, to listen to this preacher preach and give his message. And he was all primed and ready for it. And uh, turns out the guy couldn't make it. And so there was just a supply side preacher there. Who was, and he was so disappointed, upset. And as he listened to this guy preach, he was just nitpicking everything he said. Everything was wrong. And and when it was all over, mercifully, and he was finally going to get to go home, he turned to his friend to, to start to do the postmortem on how terrible it was, and he just saw tears streaming down her face. Same sermon, same preacher, completely different meaning. We bring the meaning That is so important for us to understand as we're going through this crisis. We need meaning. But to place the meaning out there is just another type of apophenia. To find it for ourselves, we must do if we're going to have a response that is actually helpful to someone besides ourselves. You know, just as this whole thing was starting... Um, I don't know, getting to be three weeks ago, four weeks ago, we started a new book study on Wednesday nights. We started uh, reading through the book of James. And the book of James so incredibly speaks to exactly what is going on in our world right now. I have to ask myself, coincidence? I don't think so. But here I go again. Ah, that's apophenia, see? Ah, they're, they're, you know, the, somehow the universe engineered this so that we started this at the same time this happened and all these. No, I don't know. I suppose it's possible. Anything's possible, right? But what I do know is what reading through James again with fresh eyes for the first time in several years, juxtaposed with all that is happening in this crisis, has just brought so much meaning to me and to the people in our study. At least we've been trying to bring it out that way. You know? Yes, as an event, these two things are merely coincidence. But the meaning is something that we really need to take a look at. And I want to do a little bit of that this morning. Take a look at James chapter 1, starting at verse 2. And uh, I know we don't have the... Uh, um, the verses to be able to put up for you. But just take a listen. They're short, and hopefully you'll we can get the gist of what's going on. James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. All right? Consider it all joy when you're going through these various trials. The joy produces the faith, produces the endurance, which produces the perfect result. Now, there's an unwritten question here. Every epistle, you get the answer, but not the question. The unwritten question is, why is this happening to us? 
James' people in that first century church are asking, why are they being so persecuted when they're trying to do everything right? They're being persecuted by Romans. They're being persecuted by Jews. The the economy in Israel is just going into the tank as they're ramping up toward the first Jewish-Roman war. Everything is going wrong. For these poor and marginalized people who were the bulk of the church, life is getting really, really hard to live. Why is this happening to us? And in the best Jewish, in the best Eastern tradition, James does not give a direct answer. Maddeningly enough, he does not give a direct answer. We are craving the certainty. We want to know the answer. What does James do? He tries to hit them with a major reframe of their worldview. A major reframe. He's saying, look, asking why this is happening, asking what even, is the wrong question. Don't ask why. Don't ask what. Ask how. How this crisis will teach me. How this crisis can grow me. And if you can reframe, if you can ask the right question of life, ask the right question of whoever you're asking, it changes everything. Why? Because asking why, why is this happening to me? Why am I being persecuted? Why keeps us victimized, keeps us in that sense of victimization, keeps us in that sense of choicelessness, that we don't have any choices that we can make. It keeps us passive because we're choiceless. We're victims, right? What can we do? It keeps us fearful. It keeps us waiting for salvation, waiting for salvation from outside of ourselves. And it keeps us self-focused, and it keeps us survival-focused. Asking why leads us down to predictable responses and predictable attitudes and predictable emotions. But if we switch that around and we start to ask how, how this is teaching me, how this can possibly grow me, it reframes the exact same circumstances, the exact same event completely. Now it creates meaning that motivates action. How is this teaching me? Now there's something that I can do. I now become active and no longer passive. Action, leaning into the learning, leaning into the salvation that is empowered through God's presence that is always here, inside. And it keeps us other-focused. It keeps us spiritually focused rather than merely survival-focused and self-focused. Instead of hoarding toilet paper, we're going to find ways to give it away, right? How can we take joy in the COVID outbreak? Only when it's been reframed as an opportunity to connect, an opportunity to grow, an opportunity to learn. Once we start to see it that way, once we take this and turn it around, everything changes about our response to it because a sense of meaning has changed. Not something outside of ourselves persecuting ourselves, but something inside of us with an opportunity now to grow, to move into something larger than ourselves. We've said so many times that we need to make sure that we understand when we're reading Jewish scripture like this that faith is not mental agreement. Faith is action. It is action in the presence of doubt, in the presence of uncertainty, in the presence of a lack of evidence to continue to act and to move with your conviction, 
is faith. And prolonged action, prolonged faith, is the endurance that James is talking about. And the endurance creates that perfect result, that completion. But that's the process. And it comes from this reframe. We aren't going to even engage that process unless we understand the meaning of it in a very different way. Well, then what happens? Jump down to verse 12. He says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, it's interesting here, that first word, blessed is a man, blessed is a woman. Same word that Jesus is using in the Beatitudes that Frank read at the beginning of our session this morning. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. The word in Aramaic is tobeh. And it's connected by root to taba, which means good, which we've talked about so many times, really means ripe. It means mature. It means ready. Blessed means the same thing. It means happy are you. Fortunate are you. Congratulations to you. You know, ripe are you, mature are you, complete are you, lacking nothing are you. You see where this is going with him? This is James bringing full circle. The endurance creates the perfect result. Blessed is the person, complete, lacking nothing is the person who perseveres under trial. For once he's been approved, he'll receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised. And we read that as modern Westerners, and we're thinking, okay, that's an if-then statement. If I do this, good thing. If I do this good work, then, then God is going to approve me. And then I'm going to get my reward, this crown of life. When am I going to get that reward? In heaven? Some other time down the road? So it's a a sense of just grinning and bearing this trial. Just getting through it any way that we can without breaking the contract, without breaking the perseverance and the endurance so that we can get our reward somewhere down the road. It'll pay off someday. But how in the world is that joyful? How do we reconcile that? So the thing that we're missing here And if we can get this one thing, if we can make this one mental reframe, everything is going to change for us. We can't earn God's approval because we already have it. (laughs) We can't earn what we already have. It's not possible. The approval of God is not something that is received because it's already here. The approval of God is realized There's a point at which we realize that it's always been here. That's a hugely different experience. And we can't know that we're approved. We can't live as if we're approved until we prove it to ourselves by our ability to persevere in this meaning of faith. It is that perseverance. It is that moving through. It is that continuing to be able to be other-centered, connection-centered, love-centered. In the presence of our fear and our doubts and our uncertainty of everything that's going on, that allows us to realize God's approval is upon us. The crown of life is already upon us. You see, in the most real way, the perseverance, the endurance, 
the reward, the approval, it's all simultaneous. It all occurs right now, right here, and no other. There is no separation. There is no if-then. When we enter into the flow of spirit, into the utter centeredness of this faith walk, we realize, we feel, we live, we walk, we manifest the approval. And we realize that that crown, that life, is ours. There is no other way this works. This is an absolute fundamental shift. If you can get this, everything in life is going to shift with you. If we somehow can understand that everything that God is and has is already ours, and we enter into it or we don't, moment by moment, we realize it, we manifest it, or we don't, but we never have to wait for it. Jesus said the waiting is over. The kingdom is here. Just repent and trust the gospel, the good news. Change direction and walk in a direction that allows you to realize that this good news is already here. It's a fundamental shift. We're not starting from a place of lack. We're starting from a place of abundance And everything shifts once we start to do that. This sense of meaning is going to shift. In a situation like this, or any situation you find yourself in life, is going to shift if your basic worldview, if your fundamental position in life is coming from this place that James and Jesus are working so hard to try to get across to us. You're starting from this place of everythingness. Changes everything. Came across an article... If I think Marion sent it to me, that, that really hit me. It's by David Brooks, a very deep thinker and, and, and good writer. And he wrote it in the New York Times. And he calls it the moral meaning of the plague. And I, I edited it down. And I want to read just a little bit of this because I'll tell you what, this guy is channeling James. And it's just interesting. First thing he writes is, the virus is a test. <laughs> we have the freedom to respond. It can all seem so meaningless. Some random biological mutation sweeps across the globe, murdering thousands, lacerating families, and pulverizing dreams. Life and death can seem completely arbitrary. Religions and philosophies can seem like cruel jokes. The only thing that matters is survival. Without the inspiration of higher meaning, selfishness takes over. This mindset is the temptation of the hour. But of course, it's wrong. We'll look back on this as one of the most meaningful periods of our lives. Viktor Frankl, writing from the madness of the Holocaust, reminded us that we don't get to choose our difficulties. We don't get to choose our difficulties, but we do have the freedom to select our responses. Meaning, he argued, comes from three things. The work we offer in times of crisis, the love we give, and our ability to display courage in the face of suffering. The work we offer in times of crisis, the love we give, and our ability to display courage in the face of suffering. The menace may be subhuman or superhuman, but we all have the option of asserting our own dignity, even to the end. I'd add one other source of meaning. It's the story we tell ourselves about this moment. It's the way we tie our moment of suffering to a larger narrative of redemption. 
It's the way we then go out and stubbornly live out that story. The plague today is an invisible monster, but it gives birth to a better world. This particular plague hits us at exactly the spots where we are weakest and exposes exactly those ills we had lazily come to tolerate. We're already a divided nation, and the plague makes us distance from one another. We define ourselves too much by our careers, and the plague threatens to sweep them away. We're a morally inarticulate culture, and now the fundamental moral questions apply. In this way, the plague demands that we address our problems in ways we weren't forced to before. Already, there's a shift of values coming to the world. We're forced to be intentional about keeping up our human connections. Relationships get forged tighter by the pressure of mutual dread. (laughs) Everybody hungers for tighter bonds and deeper care. And there's a new action coming into the world, too. I was on a Zoom call this week with college students. One question that was on all their minds, what can I do right now? Just like the conversation I had that we talked about at the beginning. What can I do right now with all this going on? What can I do? Just me. Another Zoom call, each person had begun some new activity to serve their neighbors. One lady was passing out vegetable seeds so families could plant their own vegetable gardens. That's kind of cool. One lady, um, no, others are turning those tiny front yard libraries into front yard pantries. You know what they're talking about? Have you ever seen that? Where they have a little little uh, box with books in them, and you can take a book or leave a book, and it's just so that the whole neighborhood can share their books, and it's just, now they're putting food in there. Take food, leave food. It's fascinating. Some people are putting up their holiday lights, their Christmas lights back up on their houses just to spread some cheer. I love that. I'm not much of a Christmas light person, but that's all that's all right. He writes, there's a new introspection coming into the world as well. Everybody I talk to these days seems eager to have deeper conversations and ask more fundamental questions. This is huge to me. I love this. And I'm finding the same thing as well. You know, we're not just talking about weather and sports anymore. We're not just skittering across the surface. This is forcing us to look deeper. This is forcing us to ask more fundamental questions about life and meaning. We need that at times like this. He talks about these fundamental questions. One of them, are you ready to die? Huge question. Are you ready to die? Have you considered that more now? Are you ready to die? If your lungs filled with fluid a week from Tuesday, would you be content with the life you've lived? What would you do if a loved one died? Do you know where your most trusted spiritual and relational resources lie? What role do you play in this crisis? What is the specific way you are situated to serve? We are all assigned the task of confronting our own fear. I don't know about you, but I've had a pit of fear in my stomach since this started that hasn't gone away. But gradually you discover that you have the resources to cope as you fight the fear with conversation and direct action. A stronger self emerges out of the death throes of the anxiety. Suffering can be redemptive. Suffering can be redemptive. We learn more about ourselves in these hard periods. So yes, 
This is a meaningful moment. And it is the very meaning that will inspire us and hold us together. In situations like this, meaning is a vital medication for the soul. And not just in situations like this. In any situation, in life itself, meaning is vital. Meaning is paramount. Meaning is everything because it frames our response to life. It frames every way that we are going to respond. Little situations, big situations, everything in between. We don't get to choose our trials. They choose us. We're born by accident into slices of history that are going to present macro problems, micro problems, and everything in between. We have no say in this. We don't get to choose our trials and our tests. And we don't get to choose our emotions either. Don't think that you have control over your emotions. If you're going through a real trial right now, in fact, how do you know that you're going through a real trial? Because you feel uncertainty and you feel afraid. Those emotions are going to come unbidden. They're just built into the situation that we find ourselves in. All we can do, all we can choose is our response, despite the circumstances and despite the emotions that we feel. But our response will absolutely depend on the meaning that we have assigned to the circumstances, to the trial and to the test. Our response will directly relate to that meaning. COVID-19 has no meaning. It's meaningless. It's a virus. Do you know that viruses aren't even considered to be alive? At least a bacteria is alive in the sense that something is alive. A virus isn't even alive. It's inanimate. It has no meaning. But as an opportunity to find deeper connection, to grow, to learn as individuals through this, it has all the meaning in the world, all the meaning that is possible. What does it mean to you? Is it just a scary news story? Is it a conspiracy? Is it a hoax? Is it a health or economic threat? Is it God calling you to find a deeper connection in your life? What is it to you? Is it a call to slow down? Is it a call to begin to cherish what we take far too much for granted? Whatever meaning you take is yours. It's yours alone. The tree is falling in the forest, and you're the only one there to hear it. It's your meaning that you take, and it can't be transferred to somebody else. But remember, After 9-11, if those of you who can still remember, we felt like one nation. We felt like Americans. I remember banners being draped over the freeway overpasses. It was just God bless America. And we felt all connected. All the divisions and everything that we had been squabbling about just went away for what? Two months? Eight weeks? And then we went right back to fighting again. If you're finding meaning now, because of this crisis, in the simplest human connection, 
If you're finding meaning now in eye contact that you didn't get before, just walking down the street, how long is it going to last? This virus is going to end. The economy will rebound in some way or shape or form. We will reassort, reassert whatever new normal comes out of this. It won't be the same normal as before, I doubt. But there will be a new normal. And we'll be lulled back into that normal the way that we always are. How long is it going to last? Whatever meaning you're finding right now, whatever you're experiencing right now. You know, a lifetime ago (laughs) was four weeks ago. Can you even process that Ash Wednesday was only four weeks ago when we started Lent? It seems like another lifetime. It seems like another story that, that... someone read to me once. When we started Lent just four weeks ago, we started it as trying to reimagine Lent as a boot camp, reimagine it as a training ground for ourselves, reimagine it as an opportunity for six weeks before Easter to reframe our view of life and to find ourselves a new habitus, what the, socio- what the anthropologists call habitus, which is a new habitual way of living a new habitual way of perceiving. It's a new worldview. To see if in that space we could lay enough of the groundwork, enough of the framework, the foundation, that we would have a new habitus, a new way of living life that would live beyond just the 40 days of Lent. It would take us up through Easter and this promise of new life and continue on. That was the the hope, that was the prayer, that was the the way that we were trying to approach Lent. And now this virus comes along and it intensifies, it almost symbolizes, gives concrete teeth and traction to the wilderness experience that Lent is all about. The virus is our wilderness in this time. It is bringing everything to a, a finer point, trying to get us to, to see much more deeply about what is going on, intensified. Think deeply about the meaning that you are taking, not only from this virus, but from, if you did, have a pledge to yourself about what Lent was going to mean to you this season. Think deeply about this meaning and make it a deep enough part of you that when this is new, when this is over and this new normal sets in and descends, that you can keep practicing what has become meaningful for you here and now. Because if you don't, it'll fade. It is up to us to protect the meaning that we find. And the only way that we do that is to continue to practice it It's the faith walk. It's the endurance to continue to practice it even when the circumstances change. Principles don't change. Circumstances do. Can we continue to persist? Can we continue to persevere? And if you haven't found any meaning in this crisis beyond just the need to survive, if fear is still the fundamental operative in your life, See if you can reframe the question as James is talking about. Stop asking why. Stop seeing yourself as the cosmic victim. 
Stop seeing yourself as passive and waiting for salvation. But reframe the question and start asking, how does this teach? How do I grow through this? And watch your responses change as night follows day from fear to hope, from inaction to action, from self-centeredness to other-centeredness, and see how you not only become a blessing to the people around you, but find your own blessedness at the same time. Let's pray. Father, it seems strange for us to thank you for something as difficult and as devastating as this outbreak. But Father, thank you for this opportunity for us to see through the veneer, to see through the curtain, the things that usually blind us to what's really central and important in life. Thank you for a new definition of wilderness to overlay on our concept of Lent that allows us to continue to grow toward the new life that you promise. Help us to find that meaning, Lord. Help us to revel in it and then help us to persevere in it when times are not so tough. That's what we want, Father, to continue to grow toward you, to continue to be completely relevant and helpful to everyone around us. Father, you didn't give us this plague, but we believe that you are the way through it. You are the escape through it. Help us to continue to turn to you and find in you the connection that makes every moment sacred, worthwhile, and as James says, joyful. We love you, Father. Thank you for loving us through everything. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name. And wherever you are now, don't need to take your hands, but just join in the Lord's Prayer. And if it seems silly, speak it out loud anyway, wherever you are. Who's Father? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks, everyone. 6.30, Tuesday night and Wednesday night, both online. You can go to our streaming page. You can find the links. We hope that you'll log in there and so we can see and hear you and talk to each other. And then, of course, next Sunday as well, 10 a.m. We love you all. Have a great rest of your Sunday. Blessings.